All right, we're looking at, um, I almost called the book Seven Core Questions All Parents Are Asking, and my editor went, no. Um, but we're looking at essentially the questions parents have for me uh, boil down to these kinds of things. Um, they also just happen to be the things that your kids need the most in order to function well as adults, which is why we're doing this. Uh, to keep your life from being crazy day to day, which is the other reason why we're doing this. And for I think this parallels what God calls us to in his image, which we'll get here in just a second. What we've been talking about here is not just your children's behavior, but their hearts, their character. All right. The goal, I believe, is not just a well-behaved child. The goal is whole hearts in God's image. The, the job of a Christian psychologist is to kind of operationalize what Scripture says and what we learn through research and developmental study as to what humans need and kind of put arms and legs on that and make it practical. So as we're going along tonight, you can see I keep switching back and forth between talking about it spiritually and talking about it psychologically. There's different words for the same theme. God made our hearts. Psychologist's job is just to figure out how he did it how they work. All right, so we've been talking about submission. Another thing we need to do life, another thing our kids need to learn is the flip side, and that is how do I be strong? This is about having a sense of self. This is about helping your kids develop mastery. It's about your kids having a chooser, having a backbone. We'll talk about this one more tomorrow too, um, paradoxically under the love talk category. But this one's complex because we want our kids to be able to submit, right? I mean, we just talked about that. We want them to be able to bend the knee. But let me ask you this. How are the people who are just compliant doing in life? You know? Again, I find most Christian parenting books basically just focus on teaching your children to learn to submit. Your children need to sort of, you know, honor and respect the authority in the home as we honor and respect God's authority. And that's kind of it for them. And that's legit. I mean, that's why it's two of our seven, obedience and submission. It is 28.5% of our parenting, okay? But there's 71.5% of stuff left, other stuff. I hear God calling us to an array of heart abilities, not just obedience and submission, I hear him calling us to things about love and about power and about forgiveness and about wisdom. Not just submission, not just act right, okay? And besides, I see a ton of adults, as I alluded to earlier, in therapy when they finish being compliant, good little boys and girls who did everything they were supposed to do and they hit adulthood and they are terrified. The only thing they learned to do was be compliant, okay? And now they're children in an adult world. A world they feel like is kind of all full of parent figures, and they don't know what to do because they didn't learn this one about power and about ma uh, uh, mastery, all right? So I think equipping our kids to function in the world and reflect God's image involves other things as well besides just obedience and submission. And one of them is about learning to develop their own strength and a sense of self and an ability to handle stuff because we're trying to produce adults here, right? Another way to say this is there's a sense in which parenting has two goals, not just one. I call them roots and wings, or prepare, protect, and prepare. All right? Sounds kind of like love and limits again, right? It is. 
Well, roots, obviously, is where we give them all that love. Nested and safe and grounded, and here's where you belong, baby. But we also need to consciously be aware of focusing on the process of helping them develop wings. In other words, the ability to be strong and move out and do things on their own, some independence. And God made us to do this. God created us to do this. When he, when he gets Adam and Eve in the garden, he's going to spend time with them in the cool of the day. But the first thing he does is not say, come on, let's have some kumbaya time. He says, i got a job for you to do. Name the animals, subdue the earth, get busy. So part of being in his image is, involves being this powerful person. And you see this kind of start with toddlers. I mean, what are their favorite words? No, me, mine, you know. Wit actually has a wind-up. He goes, you know, it's over the field, over the park fence, folks. You know, Catherine told me that it was around age two when he was really into that. She said he's supposed to have a 100-word vocabulary by the time he's two years old. And I said, well, if 68 of those are no, does that count? You know, it's kind of what he did. Now, this is not just a little willful sin nature happening here, all right? It's also the beginning of a me. It's the beginning of strength. And even though we just talked about submission and obedience, we want this stuff, folks, okay? This is the foundation of them being powerful one day. So we're going to limit them, like our, we were just saying earlier before the break, and we're going to empower them, kind of both, like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. But again, you feel the love and limits dance again? So let's look at this wings bit. Let's look at this power bit. Let's look at the strength bit. There are two parts of this I want to look at. I call them identity and strength. Now, again, this is not teaching self-centeredness. They don't need any help with that. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but they, most of them got that one down, all right? This is about developing a sense of me. This is about not needing to always ask, what's everyone else doing? This is about asking, what do I value? Who are they? This is Martin Luther saying, here I stand. I can do no other. This is what the Bible calls stewardship. What are you going to do with the you that God gave you? When the master comes back, what did you do? Do you feel God's call to mastery here and strength? This is, when, this is what Joshua calls a ye. You know, when Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and he says, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my family, we'll serve Yahweh. But choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Reach down inside of yourself, and who, who, what are you going to choose? you got to have a ye. This is about developing a ye. Okay, This isn't about self-centeredness. This is about who's making these choices. Okay? I was talking to a mother a couple of years ago, and she had um, a child who had some conflict at school. He was about eight. And as she was telling me the story, she said that she decided to ask him, before she freaked out, that's step one, parents, okay, conflict at school, and she didn't freak out. She, asked, she decided to ask him how he would like to handle the conflict, um, and he told her, and he handled it. <laughs> And I was just really struck by that. The opportunity to ask himself, the opportunity his mother gave him to ask himself even at eight, how do I want to handle this conflict? I mean, that's identity happening right there, folks. Okay? Now, of course, unless she wants her own personal little 
Kim Jong-un on her hand, she's also going to have to tell him that what she wants matters too, okay? This isn't tell us who you are, Johnny, and you can run the world, but it is tell us who you are, Johnny, so you can function in the world, okay? So we're wanting to develop this. So look for opportunities to, to have space, to make permission for your child to be asking who they are. They don't get to decide whether they do their homework, but they can decide whether to do their homework now or have a snack. They get to decide whether to do music or baseball. I laid out two outfits you get to pick. I was talking to a client of mine who had listened to a parenting conference, and um, she said, you know, you said that thing, I laid out two outfits and you get to pick. And when you said that, I just burst into tears. Because no one ever, ever, ever asked me what I wanted, what I liked, who I was. So it might seem lame, two outfits you get to pick, but it just, it just kicked her over. It's, it's, you're saying, hey, I want, I want to make room for you. Secondly, we're going to um, ask questions. We're going to say, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? This is you. You know, when we ask children questions like, how did that feel? Or it looked like that really hurt you. We're not doing psychobabble there. We're doing taxonomy. We're teaching this thing that you're experiencing. It is called fear. It is called anger. Tell me about that. I want to know you. We're talking about your heart. Um, as we said in the marriage conference, one of the most powerful ways to connect with somebody's heart is about what they feel. You're feeling hurt. All right? We're technically doing something there. We're not doing, you know, Mr. Rogers touchy-feely. Also, we can act like a mirror. You really love baseball, don't you? Wow, that felt bad to you, didn't it? In other words, get to know you, kid. I'm kind of a mirror helping you learn this thing called you. This is a huge thing to help kids develop a sense of this is me. And you'll hear kids um, um, repeat it later on. There's a story in the book about a little boy who and I was a counselor at Alpine and his mother brought him to camp, and she pulled me aside, and she said, Billy's a real worrier, and he's going to get homesick, so I just want to let you know. And I wasn't a psychology doctorate yet, but I also wasn't an idiot. I'm thinking, well, you know what? I kind of have a feeling he is going to get homesick then, you know? <laughs> and by golly, it wasn't long after Billy woke me up and said, I'm homesick. My mom said I would. And I'm like, well, you're doing exactly what she wanted apparently okay so kids are going to take in this image that we're giving them a picture of who they are I like to call out those compliant obedient little follower children talking about blind spots this is going to sound kooky to you but some of you have children who are always obedient and always do what you say be a little careful of that I want to call those out I had one at one point uh, because they're they're saying in essence "Ooh, I want to be such a good little boy I don't want to be me and I want to say, uh-uh. I had one who went through a phase like that. And I'd come home from work and she'd say, how was your day at work, Daddy? And I'd go, well, it's kind of hard. I'm kind of brain dead, a lot of clients. And she'd turn around to her sisters and go, okay, y'all, be quiet, because Dad's had a hard day. And I said to her, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm pretty strong and I got your mom. You go be a kid. I mean, thanks and everything, but go be a kid. Go fight with your sisters and watch cartoons or, you know, whatever kids do. But I wanted to fire her of that little compliant child position. So we're building self here. This isn't selfishness, only I matter. 
This is helping them just get a seat at the table, a voice, an identity. Number two, we're going to build strength. We're going to talk about this one a lot tomorrow too. Again, under the love category. These are incredibly loving things to do, especially with a school-age child, is help and empower them and give them strength. Um, but your kids will help you know when you need to do this, when you need to push towards strength. Um, at some point, you will notice your children will be coming up to you with problems that you will find difficult to fix. Think about the problems that they bring sometimes. A kid's mean to them at school. I'm afraid of the weather. I'm afraid you're going to die. I'm afraid I can't go to sleep. And you go, no, 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 the weather's not going to hurt us. And they're like, well, I'm still afraid. And you go, well, we'll talk to the teacher. Well, I'm still scared of that bully at school. Well, I'm still scared you're going to die. But I'm still afraid. Of, and nothing you say in reassurance and nurture and helping them works. You'll reach that point, especially ages 8, 9, and 10. We'll talk to more about that. And you keep reassuring them, and it doesn't help. Well, the reason that you will find difficulty in helping them solve these problems with more roots and more love and more reassurance is because you can't solve these problems with more roots and loves and reassurance. You have to solve them with wings. You have to solve them with strength. When you experience that, that realistic helplessness, that whatever I'm saying, the kid's not feeling any better, that's your sign to stop parenting and start deparenting, kind of empowering. In other words, the response is not going to be, you know, I'm going to help you and reassure you and comfort you and you can come sleep in our bed. The solution's going to be, you know what? I know that's scary, but I got news for you, amigo. You're strong. And you can do this, and, and I'm going to help you do this, and actually you need to do this. And what I'm doing is some children need us to listen to and hear and understand their insecurities and their vulnerabilities, and some kids need us to listen to and understand and point out and show them their strength and their power. They don't see it. I know you're scared, but you need, you need to do this, and you can do this, and I'll show you, and I'll help you. I'm bored. Well, then I'm sure you can find something to do to entertain yourself. I'm not picked for backyard kickball. Oh, baby, I love you. I know that's the worst feeling, love. But I want you to get back out there and find a way in that game, limits. And we're pushing them and empowering them, okay? This is about empowering, which is as important as teaching them about love, okay? I know of a mom right now and she's got like a, a little three-year-old child and they're just super attached and super cute and super cuddly it's like they're just joined like baby koala and that's sweet but that's all they do and he doesn't sleep through the night and he crawls into bed with her all the time and he's got a ton of anxiety and so does she okay so part of our job is to build independence this is a great place for dads to swing in by the way you know often dads get relegated to just being the heavy and disciplined like well, I'm gonna tell your father and he's gonna really you know and you're kind of the bad guy dads have such an incredibly powerful opportunity to be power brokers in other words I see so many kids who have anxiety or fearfulness and their dads are like oh come on son buck up 
toughen up, man. Now, how psycho is that? I mean, you were just a big, scary man telling the scared kid to stop being scared, which is going to scare him more, okay? What if you were a power broker, Dad? What if you said, yeah, it's scary. I get scared all the time. But you know what? I can teach you to be strong. You want to learn? And you teach that kid how to make sense of his anxiety. I like to um, objectify fear for kids. What kids would say, "Eh, we may have time to talk about this some tomorrow. I'm going to talk about it right now. Yeah. Kids are concrete, remember? They don't know they're having feelings. They don't know they're afraid. They think the world is dangerous. In other words, they're thinking the world is a scary place. But that's not true. The world's scary and all that, but the real, really what's happening here is you're feeling fear. And I like to objectify fear for fearful kids and go, you know what? That fear's going to talk to you a lot, and it's going to tell you scary things. Like that people are going to be mean to you at school, or that you're going to have another bad night. And you know what? I want you and me to start learning to push back on that fear and go, uh-uh. And when you get back from school today, I'm going to ask you how school went. And I bet you school's going to go okay. And we're going to turn to fear and go, see? And he starts to have an ally against this emotion that's running him. You're teaching power against anxiety. All right, so identity and power. That is as important as submission just was. All right, now blind spots. Some of you guys are out there saying, my kid needs no help at all with strength, Dr. Cox. Thank you very much. He is Kim Jong-un. <laughs> so we're just going to like tune out during this one. Like I was working with this couple once about their teenage daughter who was running this family. And <clears throat> I was talking to them about how to set limits on her and push back on her and take her off the throne. And they were like, we could never say anything like that to her. She would never speak to us again. I'm like, and that's a bad thing? You know, the mom said, I just want her to know that we love her. And I I wanted to say, I just want her to know where Juvie is. But I resisted. Um, Anyway, she doesn't need more empowerment. They can skip this lesson, all right? She needs somebody to take away her glittery pink cell phone until she stops saying, oh my gosh, you guys are so retarded, okay? That's what she needs. So blind spots, different things. See how this can be a grid for your decision making, right? How do I help my kids with pain in life? This is about mourning. God calls this mourning, getting the log out of your eye, repentance, forgiveness, humility. This is how do you help your child from becoming a perfectionist? How do you help them make sense of failing, or real pain. I have a client right now whose ex-husband is a, is a very, very, very cruel, narcissistic man. And he gets the children in visitation, and he's so, so deeply hurtful to them. And her questions to me all the time are, how do I help my children with the fact that their dad is just such a brutal person? Or what we're dealing with now, fear. How do we help our child in a world that's screaming all the time, everything is dangerous? How do we teach our children to deal with the fact that life is so hard? Basically, biblically speaking, we are not born knowing how to deal with the fall, with pain. 
with hurt, with fear. We were born, we were created, engineered to live in Eden, so we're really fish out of water when it comes to dealing with pain. That's why everybody has trouble with it. Nobody knows how to deal with loss, failure, imperfection, shame. We don't know how. We're not wired for it. We've got, we have to learn it on the fly. Usually, we, when we encounter pain, we do kooky, crazy things, like live in protests. Like, this is when we're like, this is inexcusable, you know, to your spouse. Or this is when your kid is throwing a tantrum. They're protesting, you know. I want an Oompa Loompa now. Okay, they're protesting. I don't like the way things are. We can go to escapes. I mean, the reason people go to sex, drugs, and rock and roll is to get away from how life hurts, right? We can just shut down, develop symptoms, whatever. We aren't born knowing how to deal with the fall. So how do we help our kids with this? This is going to overlap some with the strength piece with a different octave on it. Number one, be very careful about rescuing our kids from the manageable pains in life. All right? None of us want our children to hurt, and none of us want our children to struggle, and yet they will, and we can't protect them from that, and that's bad news. But the good news is this, another secret of the universe. Pain itself does not harm children. Unresolved pain harms children, all right? The pain that's brought into relationship and love and you walk with me in, the pain, the fear, the whatever, actually makes us stronger. Okay, go read Romans 5. Pain produces perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope. Hope does not disappoint. Okay, if you walk into pain in a connected way with our kids, we don't rescue them. Pain itself is not going to hurt them. What I hear in my office is not we had pain because dad was such an alcoholic. What I hear in my office is, I have pain because dad was such an alcoholic and no one ever talked about it. There's the hook. There's the poison. Get it? So be careful about being rescue rangers from the manageable stuff. Ooh, I don't want my children to hurt. It will hurt you if they hurt, okay? But it's the lesser of two evils. I have a client now who's kid has a ton of anxiety and we were talking about it and as I started exploring I found out that mom is like miss super overprotective she like cuts his spaghetti up because the noodles are so long you know and if his friends gets a toy he gets a toy too and she's literally teaching him that he is fragile do you see how she's doing that I'm relating to you as if you're not strong enough to manage the difficult things the kids going like my little Billy at camp huh I must be fragile Good info, Mom. Thanks. Okay? Instead of rescuing, what we're going to do is we're going to come alongside of them in their pain. Again, we'll talk about this more tomorrow. But what is unresolved pain? If unresolved pain is what hurts kids, then what is unresolved pain? Unresolved pain is pain no one joins me in, no one helps me with. Tomorrow we're going to talk about how being with our children in their pain is what is really going to help metabolize it and heal it. With is going to be a major power tool for us tomorrow. Think about it. With is God's favorite preposition. Emmanuel, God with us. Lo, I'll be with you always even to the end of the age. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm going to come make it all better. No, I'll be with you. 
Okay, with, with, with. It's his favorite thing. So attenders, you just put words on those, those feelings, that little kid, they're way past nap time for the nap and they're starting to fragment. And maybe all you say is, I know, baby, I know. You're so tired. And you don't know it, but you're actually help metabolizing how difficult this is for them. You're putting a word on it. You're having presence with them in it. And you're teaching them about healing and suffering at two years old. Go you, okay? That school-age kid. Oh, buddy, everybody got a hit but you. That's the worst, man. I remember that. Or, sweetheart, your best friend's got a new best friend and they're being mean to you. Not, well, I will get on the phone with her mother and we'll blow up Facebook, you know. And you, No, I'm with you. I love you. I know this is so hard. And what we're teaching them when we do that is that it can be okay. That love is where we run. Not to anesthesias or anger. That when pain is loved, it gets better. And then you begin to see them have that inside. That's really fun. I used to love seeing our little ones play with their doll babies. And they'd be getting there and they'd, they'd be saying, it's all right. It's okay. And it would bring tears to my eyes. Why? Because where did they learn that? Where were they drawing that from? They were starting to have that inside of them. And we're teaching them in the midst of pain, it's okay. It's all right as we let them face struggle, and yet we're with them in it, okay? You do that in your hall in the mail, all right? Remember what we said about how empathy, connection, love and limits, human connection is actually what heals brokenness and sin? Well, here's secret of the universe number 37. With and connection and belonging with another person heals our pain as well. Loss and shame and suffering and pain are healed in loving presence with another person. For some reason I don't understand and I ought to understand it because it's my job. It's the reason therapy works. You bring your pain into a relationship and something about being with and being connected makes it get better. That's why the body of Christ works. Don't ask me why. I just run this machine. God made it up. Now, thirdly, the real bad news, the third and most powerful way in which we teach our kids to deal with yuck in life is by having them see and experience us dealing with our own disappointments and losses and fears and theirs and keeping our poise. Cringe together now. In other words, can we face junk in our lives and Keep our cool. Can we be cool like two little Fonzies? What's Fonzie like? Cool. Correct Mundo. Movie reference? All right, good. Again, if you don't know that one, we can't be friends. All right. Check out the big brain on Brett. In other words, in the losses, in the pain, what do they see? What do they experience? Here's a little rule of thumb for us with our children's pain. You cannot be any more than X minus one is upset about your child's problem as your child is. X being the integer that defines how upset your child is. Okay? In other words, they don't get cheerleader. They're going to cry on their bed all afternoon. 
It's the moms who are freaking out. They're calling all their moms. They're blowing up Facebook. They're going to change this policy. And now the child has two problems. They didn't get cheerleader, and mom is a wacko, okay? Which is a major reason a lot of times children don't tell their parents about bad things that happen to them, okay? So how do they see us react, all right? Now, if you're like me, that makes you depressed, <laughs> Because, I mean, I'm a, I was a reactive maniac all the time. So what are we going to do? Well, you know where we got to go. Back to John's theme song. Show them our poise or show them our humility. Let's say it together now. The only thing better than a perfect parent is a humble parent. All right? So when you mess up, when you overreact, when you're shaming and a jerk, you come back and you say, man, I was mean to you. I made the biggest deal out of this. That's on me. I'm so sorry. I know that was scary. And we work to heal it. In other words, the best secret of the universe and my favorite one of all is that we teach grace in relationships by needing grace. That's what this category is about, right? Grace. So in other words, I'm not telling y'all you have to handle all the yuck in your lives with your children with poise and grace, I'm announcing to you that you can. And the grace is going to go on you too. We're showing them, teaching them about how to make sense of messed up life by teaching them about messed up us. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you when I mess it up. The message this is sending the kids is, even in my life, just as in yours, it's going to be bad. There's going to be problems. We are going to fail. And you know what? I can own mine. And the place we run to when we do that is to each other. Not to anesthesia, not to anger, not to protest, not to, not to escape. Love is where we run. That's God's answer. And that's ours too, okay? By the way, see how this would also help with the other side of badness too we haven't talked so much about? And that is shame. In other words, is it okay for me to be bad? Our children are asking that question. Basically, everyone is born with shame. It's not like people are born free of shame and you're a bad parent so your kids learn to be shame-based. We can add more shame, you know, as we go along, but we're born under the law, Paul tells us, which means all of us have this constant awareness of the knowledge of good and evil. It's what happens when your forefathers eat of that tree. I think we actually need to work to unshame children. When they see our humility, it unshames them. When they see that dad screws up just like me, it unshames them. When they're all down because of something they screwed up, I remember telling one of mine one time, I said, the way I see it, you were just doing your job. And she said, what? And I said, well, you're a kid. Your job is to learn. Your job is to make mistakes and screw things up and learn. So you screwed that up. Good job. <laughs> In other words, I want to free them out of shame, okay? So, dealing with pain, dealing with badness in the world, failure in them and us, we're teaching them about the power of love and strength and connection. This is about hearts, ultimately, remember? All right, lastly, how do I teach our uh, children about God? Ultimately, what we're created for is a relationship with Him, and all this character stuff doesn't have ultimate meaning if we, if we don't have a relationship with Him. 
So how do we teach them about teach them about God? Well, number one, we've already been talking about this. All right, it's not like we've suddenly switched to the religious segment of our program. All right. In other words, when you're engaging your children with issues about love and limits and submission and forgiveness and humility and steadfastness and strength and power and you're already teaching them the software for a relationship with God. And then when they plug the content in later, it plugs into that software smoothly. They're already ahead of the game. In fact, a huge reason that people have problems in their spiritual life is not because they're bad people or they like sinning. It's because they're having character blind spots in some of these seven areas that we're talking about. In other words, we're developing an operating system here. And the reason I want you to have all these categories is because these are all the parts that make it work. I mean, think about it. How's your obedience going to go if you never learned to submit? How is your understanding of grace going to go if you never taught that whole badness thing we just talked about? And what I find is when people develop these abilities in their character, those spiritual issues lift. Our character is the tool with which we relate to everyone, be it God or our children or ourselves or whomever, all right? That's how therapy works. That's the How We Grow conference, which we ought to do one day. Anyway, point being, there's not like spiritual areas of life and psychological areas of life, okay, or parenting areas of life. But how do we specifically teach our kids about God? Two ways, content and experience. Of course, teaching kids content about him is fundamental. Overt teaching, family devotions, church, Christian schools when you got them. My family, we always had trouble, like me and our kids, had trouble with the family devotion thing. We struggled with it. It inevitably turned into, you will sit down and you will worship as you were told. Do you understand, young lady? You know, it was real meaningful stuff, you know. Um, So, great. Teach them content. But one of the things I want you to get is the ultimate place we teach content is, well, when God was asked, where do you teach kids content about you? Like um, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11. He didn't say go do family devotions, if you notice. He said teach them as you walk along the way, as you rise up, as you lay down. In other words, make life a family devotion. You want the best content for your kids about God? Bring him up all the time. He's there all the time. I loved this part of parenting. It's candy land. Just have fun with it. Um, one of my kids would say, look, look at that rainbow, Dad. I want you to say something like, man, are you kidding me? You know how you color in your coloring books with all different colors of crayons? God colors with light. He takes white light and splinters it out with the water and the air and turns it into a rainbow. Whoa, he's a crazy great artist. I knew I was getting through one time when one of mine during the fall, she said, look, Daddy, God painted that tree red. And I'm like, what was he thinking? We cook together, me and the kids. And do you know that if you squeeze an egg with just your four fingers, you can't break it? Go home and try it. Over a towel, if you don't believe me. 
but you can't. And so we would be, you know, cracking the egg was always a prized task, you know, when the girls were cooking with me. But I go, come on, here, try, try to squeeze it. And they'd be going, and I'm like, yeah, God made eggs to protect little chickens from goobers like y'all. You know, you just throw it in there. It's everywhere. We used to have a game we played with the blessing, and that was um, we would taste the food before we'd say the blessing. That way you know how thankful to be, you know? It might not be very good, so you'd be kind of like, yeah, thanks, but maybe pizza, and we need to have, like, burnt offerings and stuff, you know? So you make this stuff real, and it's going to drop in your lap. I had the most wonderful experience at Thanksgiving. I had three-year-old Whit in my lap. We were riding around in my sister's boat at Lake Cavalier in Jackson, and it was just after eating, and we were just chilling, and somebody else was driving the boat slow, and we were kind of chasing ducks. And Whit looks up at me, and he says, Papa, who made me up? And I said, God did. He thought, hmm, I want to make the coolest kid in the whole world, so I'm going to make Whit Deemer. And he goes, are you God? And I said, no, but when God looks at you, his face looks a lot like mine does when I look at you. This stuff's just lying around, man. That's where you teach them content about God. Basic principle is this. Everything is the way it is because God made it that way. Just show that to your kids, okay? Now, experience. Again, as you've heard, as a theme we developed tonight, the most powerful way anybody learns anything and certainly the most powerful way children learn anything is through what they experience. So another secret of the universe, you can get content about God in lots of places. You get content what you know through Bible studies or church or reading or coming to conferences. But where do we get that internal gut sense of what God is like? We get that from our relationships. You know how you can know something about God but feel something completely different? I know God forgives me, but I don't feel forgiven. I know I shouldn't be a jerk to my wife, but I still am angry. You know that separation? I call it the head-heart gap. That's in the growth conference, too. Um, we get the gut sense of what God is like for my relationships. So when you're cuddling that little one before bedtime and you're smelling the top of their head, and you're letting them just sort of form to you and coo, and you're humming and holding them. You don't know it, but you're teaching them something about what God's like, that sort of home, that sort of belonging. Even God uses that as a reference point in Isaiah. You know, even a mother may forget her nursing child, but I will not forget you. He thinks like that. You come home from work and that eight-year-old runs to you and you pick him up and you shake him and you say, hey, spud, you know, and he sees how welcome he is in your eyes. You're teaching him something about how God welcomes us. Now, again, if you're like me, this also makes you depressed. Who can bear this kind of burden? My children are going to get their sense of what God is like from relating to me. Check, please. <laughs> Don't let it bum you out yet. Yeah, option one, let your walk match your talk. In other words, get your friends, your spouse, hold you accountable for growing as a parent. Heck, you're at a parenting conference. You get a check mark, all right? But again, we're all going to fail with that. So number two, let's be free. 
Let's go back to our principle. Also let your talk match your walk with your kids. As we've been saying, again, all along, we also show our kids God by don't talk like you got it together since you don't. Hey, kid, I need grace as much as you. Again, our background all along through all of this. What does the Bible do? It tells you how to live and it tells you where to run when you fail. That's what I want this conference to be for you. I used to struggle with my temper with my kids, as I told you. I was an angry jerk sometimes. So one of the things I did was I told them about it and I asked them to call me out. I said, you know, if, I'm, if you guys do bad, then I'm going to send you to time out or something. But if I'm a jerk, that's on me and you can call me out about it. And it wasn't long after that that I, you know, lost my marbles again. And Callie comes in and she's like, no, we were bad, Daddy, but you're just being mean. You want instant anger management training? Again, as we're fellow sinners and fellow screw-ups with them, we are showing them what a relationship with God looks like and feels like. We teach grace by needing grace. The only thing better than a perfect parent is a humble parent. This is the deepest spiritual foundation you can give them. This is Christian parenting, folks. Remember the grace effect? As we fail and as we come in humility, it actually makes our relationship closer. And now, later on, when somebody teaches them about grace, they can go, yeah, that's how mom used to ask for our grace when she would mess up. And we're bringing those two together. All right. Congratulations. That's the Magnificent Seven, gang. You did it. I told you this night's a hard one. But we've been teaching our kids about love and about wisdom and choices and about the ability to submit and the ability to be strong and the ability to make sense of badness and to know and love God and mostly how to be a broken human because we're so good at that. <laughs> now, don't feel like you've got to get all these right now. This is, a, this is drinking through a fire hose on Friday night. We're going to unpack more tomorrow, get the recording, go back over it, ask me more questions, get the book, whatever. But I want you all to have this. We just made a model for your parenting, a comprehensive one. All right? Remember what I told you? I'm a therapist to adults. And I'm thinking, what is it that adults need to make life work? They need this. All right? But again, whatever you do, don't use this to put more pressure on yourself. Hey, it's a great conference. We learned seven ways to screw up our kids. Thanks, Doc. You know, don't live that way. Parenting at the bottom line, remember, is a relationship, not a task. It's being people together, not doing everything right. I tell parents all the time that parenting is really like being in a rowboat that has five holes in the bottom. And you've got two hands and two knees. And there's always one hole you're going to miss, all right? One, uh, just to round us up, I had screwed something up with uh, my kids one time and then was driving them somewhere and they were all three in the back seat. And um, as I'm driving along, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I really did. Like, you're right. That, that, I totally dropped the ball on that one. Um, and then I continued foolishly. I said, you got to make, you got to, you got to, you got to forgive me because, I mean, this is actually my first time to be a dad and I'm still kind of learning. <laughs> and one of them in the back said, well, is there like a book you can read or like a class you can go to? <laughs> Little did they know they would star in a book themselves. All right, let's do questions.
All right, with our local group here, going once, going twice, and we'll send it to the internet. Next caller. Is Jenny from Manhattan Beach, California? Okay, we, we've got one from our uh, studio audience here, the TV audience. Um, as a recovering compliant child and young parent, how can one fight against learned patterns of parenting to try and produce compliant children? And how do I fight against what my parents did to me? Okay, so this is a person who's talking. This will be interesting because usually if you ask a question, I'll ask you follow-up questions so I can really fine point. But I'm going to have to sort of like, like uh, just riff on this one. So she's saying, I think it's a she. This is they a are saying. This is a he. It's a he. He is saying that um, he, was, he is a compliant person and was a compliant child. Um, he's saying he does not want to raise compliant children himself. He's saying currently his children are acting compliant and he's encouraging that. Not necessarily. I, I think he's just saying, how do you fight against learned patterns of parenting and try to produce compliant children? In trying to produce compliant children. Right. Ah, okay. So, um, one of the other things he implied was, how do I recover in that? That's a great question and a great place to start. Um, parenting, like marriage, is going to encourage and require you to grow a lot as a person. So here you are, this compliant person. You learn to do things to comply with the parent figures. And, and, and actually, that's one of the reasons that our generation of, of parents are such child pleasers. Because the generation that parented us, um, their general approach was not to parent out of um, consequences or discipline. Hey, here's, you know, you do that so you get a timeout, no harm, no foul. Their general style as a generation was kind of to parent more out of, I'm so disappointed in you. Um, kind of, I thought we raised you better than that. In other words, there was sort of a, a shame-based element in the style of parenting. So what did we learn to do? We learned to behave in a certain way so as not to upset the important people in our life, right? So what are we still doing? Acting a certain way to not upset the important people in our life. They now just happen to be our children. Okay, we just switched them out. We're still complying just like we did with our parents. So our kids go, but you missed my one game and so you must not love me. And we're like, oh my gosh, I'll never miss another game again because I don't want the people to be unhappy. You get that theme? That's kind of the generational aspect of compliance. So step number one for that parent who's going, wow, you know, I'm kind of a compliant person. I want you to get involved with your spouse and your safe people in the body of Christ or a good counselor, therapist, pastor, and start going, what am I afraid of about learning to be me and stand up in the universe and say, no? Like, how is that costing me? If I, am I a chameleon in my life? Am I uh, living saying yes all the time when I want to say no? Am I kind of being a doormat or walked over? What I find is those people grow as they start to look at, wow, what is it I've always been afraid of that's made me need to please people? Because nobody wants to make their self go away to be compliant or other people. You do it because you're afraid. So that's a wonderful thing to start looking at yourself in terms of your own growth. Now, with your children, a lot of times what I see is real compliant parents have jerky, entitled little snits for children. 
because their parents are compliant. And the children are like, but I want I want this and I want that. And the compliant parents are like, well, okay, baby. And they give in. And a lot of times compliant parents have really hellion little children. So if this is a compliant parent who has compliant children, that's kind of an interesting dynamic. So to answer their question more directly, remember we have a dance here between we want to set limits and have them submit. That was one of our seven. I want to go back to our seven. And on the other hand, we want to encourage independent strength and autonomy at the same time. Okay, so there's kind of a balance. So I want your child to be compliant some, but if you're seeing them be overly compliant, you're going to see that in different aspects of their life. You're going to see their siblings maybe getting their way with them all the time and pushing them around. You're going to see them needing power at school and not exercising it. You're going to see them having trouble with anxiety or not wanting to spend the night out. A compliant child is kind of fun when you're, you're visiting grandma's house, but a lot of compliant children have a lot of anxiety, and that can be kind of a tell that that compliance has gotten a little over the line. With that child, I want to start challenging them more, and I want to start empowering them more. And when they talk to me about being afraid and, 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 and that they don't feel strong enough to handle something, in other words, the same part of them that's being compliant, I want to push that child some. I want to, I want to uh, challenge them some. They say, well, I'm afraid to do that. I want to say, well, I know you are, but I want you to do it anyway, and I'll do it with you. And, and uh, if a compliant child says, oh, Daddy, that sermon today was wonderful, which, of course, I'm sure they always are less, but um, what I want you to say is really... Well, I'm glad you liked it. Tell me something about it you disagreed with. In other words, an overly compliant child, I want to start pulling on the parts of them that can have a little bit of rebellion. I want to look for those parts. This is that blind spots bit that we were talking about. Anyway, those are just some thoughts about that. Yes, sir. How would you approach a child who has trouble admitting they're wrong? Uh, when it's even when it's obvious, but it, it just seems that uh, pride is a barrier for them. They're indignant of any uh, type of correction, and they just kind of have this. Uh, it seems like a high view of themselves, and uh, a refusal to to admit wrong, and, and to you know just those words, "I'm sorry" or "I was wrong," and just to "No, I was right. I was glad I did it that way." Okay, I'm punished. Well, that's your problem. I'll I'll do what you have, but they're they're obviously not you know, getting it uh, in their heart to, to be able to relent a little bit. Okay. Um, boy or girl? Girl. How old? It's been a while. Uh, pro I would say probably from, uh, yeah, yeah it, it's gotten a little bit better. But, um, Seven, eight, nine was the worst probably. Yeah. Okay. So can you give me more of an example, like a situation that you would want her to admit she was wrong? Um, I'm terrible at examples. Uh, it could be something obvious. I mean, as simple as, um, you know, as yelling at a sibling or not doing a simple instruction that they were told to do, being said, no, you should have done that, and just having really, you know, fighting against all rationality of, you know, anybody could admit this was wrong. Um, it's no big deal. Like, it, you know, we're not trying to make you perfect, but you do need to admit, you know, sometimes, um, you know, that, that you're in the wrong and, and that's okay. How does she deal with shame in general? Hides, kind of kind of clams up. How does she deal with failure? Huh? I don't know that she's ever been ashamed or thought she's failed. Right. I mean, it's, Pardon it, me? It, I don't 
know that she's ever been ashamed of anything or thought she has failed. She's the oldest and pretty. So, so pretty she's good. just a little boss. Yes. How does she comply with um, discipline? If you say, I need your phone or there's no TV or you're going to your room, does she comply? Does she accept it? Yeah, um, I would say obedience on the face of it, but just finds little ways to let you know that um, she's not accepting of the, you know, she doesn't agree with you. She still thinks I'm right, you're wrong, but she'll acknowledge, you know, you are the parent, I'm the child, but you're not getting any uh, I'm sorry from me. Okay. How old is she now? She's 11. Okay. And it's gotten better. Um, I just felt like I didn't. Already? I've already fixed it? <laughs> this is awesome. See y'all? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> maybe some, something grew out of, but at, at the time, it was just a lot of, man, how do you deal with this? Like, no, it's a super like question for everybody. Even anger she's comes better. out. I mean, with a kid who just lashes out with a ton of emotions, well, now you got something to talk about. Or a kid that's just down on themselves. You can come alongside that. But when it's just a refusal to acknowledge any kind of wrongdoing, there's nothing to really come alongside of. It's... It's really just kind of like, you know, you versus me, and they've set up a, a real opposition there. Interesting. So how does she relate to her siblings ordinarily? Uh, is, there, is there an adversarial kind of style together? It, it, it was pretty rough at some time. I mean, as long as she can be in control, she's happy. Yeah. So if she's the teacher and they're playing school, we're great. Okay. But well, that's why I asked the question of how mm -hmm. she complied with discipline. She will bend the knee to you guys practically. She will go to timeout. She does lose Though she won't say it. Never. Right. Okay. Um, shoot, there was something else I was going to ask you about it. Ah, um, is there ever any time when she's out of character? In other words, um, one of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow with uh, teenagers or any kind of kid with a rebellious streak is are there any times in which you can talk with them, in which they let their guard down and you could say, you really hate it when we ask you to say, I'm sorry, don't you? And she could go, yeah, I really do. Can you ever step out of the off stage and talk about it like bird's eye, like we talked about in the marriage conference? Yes. Yeah. There's like not in the moment of something, but just kind of come at them when, when nothing's on the line. Right. What can, yeah. she, what, can she do that? Depends. You know, if she's still feeling the effects of it, maybe if it was something that happened three or four months ago. And she's going to remember, but she's not still kind of yeah. stonewalling you about it. Then, then maybe a little bit then. But you know, in the moment, it's tough because there's not nowhere really. Right in the moment, you know, I'm 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 seeding the moment. Yeah. And I'm looking for a moment later on in which you can go a little meta and look at it with her. Do you think she'd have any ability for that? Well, I mean, if I talk about it as a another oldest child to an oldest child, you know, and a story that happened to me when I was younger and I was angry at my dad then she hears that okay and usually we have kind of a moment you know but still relating to her you can her. say you know what I, I, I was thinking something remind me that you know a couple of months ago when we had that interaction and like you like refused to say you're sorry and we get all wound up in that um it reminded me of the way I used to feel with my dad and like I would just did not ever want to say I'm sorry and I don't know I was thinking you really hate being put in that position don't you I wonder what she would say Good question. Okay, good. So we're on the right track. What I'm yeah. trying to do is get to this girl's heart. In other yeah. words, we can say, Kula, you know, all day long and send her off to jail. But I want to try to find some way to kind of get in. And, and with a child like that, um, 
when you can catch it outside the moment and talk about it in a in a bird's eye kind of way where you can both kind of stand up and go look at that thing that happened she might have the ability to abstract it and think about it a lot of kids who are reactive like that remember i said earlier children are concrete with their emotions she's not thinking i'm humiliated and angry and want to be in control she just knows okay and so we're looking for some opportunity to sort of back up and teach her and say that does stink it really is a hard thing nobody likes to do that and i really care that you're put in that position and you don't like to say you're sorry and i would actually love to know how we can make that feel safer for you because man you know what i screw up all the time are you aware of the times i screw up what would she say to that she would say yes okay yeah (laughs) yeah i bet you're an expert at it and you know what it's hard for me to say it too and i'm i want to get out of that role of, of trying to make you say I'm sorry and make you say, okay, um, wait, let's talk about that a second. I think there's also a little power struggle. <laughs> I smell a power struggle in here somewhere of, you know, say you're sorry, no, say you're sorry, and who's going to win? And a lot of times kids, once they, we'll talk about this tomorrow, once kids get in a power struggle of, of um, you want me to do something and I don't want to do it, they'll, they'll like, you know, you know, drive their car off a Thelma and Louise cliff before they'll give in, you know? That's her. (laughs) Okay, right, all right. So so I'm sniffing a power struggle here too. So we're going to do love and limits with her. On the one hand, we're going to be looking for an opportunity to say, hey, babe, you know that thing that happens? That is hard. I get that. I mean, it stinks to to do that. But secondly, I want to be careful about y'all being in a power struggle where you will say you're sorry to your sister. I want to say, you know what, I, I really think that it would be healing to acknowledge that you hurt her. Were you all at the marriage commerce? Yes. Okay, good. Remember I talked about what heals a, an injury and a conflict is not saying I'm sorry, it's saying I get it. When I did that, that really hurt you. I totally get that. I'd almost rather a child say, yeah, I was mean to you and I get that. That would feel bad than saying I'm sorry. And yet, you know what? You seem very determined to not do that. Um, I'm still going to give you consequences, but I'm not going to fight you about it. If you don't want to say it right now, we will wait because obviously, obviously that's something that's too hard for you. And then I would talk to her about it later and bring it up and say, that really is hard, isn't it? It's like, it's like you're being a loser, like you're saying you're bad and you're wrong and nobody likes that. I got your back on that. I totally know it. In fact, next time it happens... If you hurt one of your sisters and I say, would you acknowledge to her that that hurt and you don't want to, I'm going to like give you a wink because I'm knowing what's going on with you, that it's hard for you. And I'm with you in it. It's hard. And now you're kind of on her team with her in this pain um, and you've avoided the power struggle and you've now engaged her heart in some way. Now, this, unlike a, a discipline question, you know, if your question is, how do we get her to quit flicking peas at the dinner table? We could do that tomorrow. Right? But what you're talking about here is more of a developmental heart issue, and it's sort of like putting fertilizer on a plant. We're going to put that systemic in there and water it, and over a season, you're going to see that sort of shift for her, I think. That won't be an instant fix, but I want you to at least have that mentality of, of getting out of the power struggle and trying to make her do it, um, trying to find those times outside of the moment of the war to catch her and engage her, and then kind of join her in it, even to connecting with you and your dad, you know. Um, she needs the, to know that y'all kind of get it. Kind of like we said about what softens the blow of submission. 
is that you get it. There's something going on there. All right? Play with that. Okay, good. And thank you for working so much with me. I needed help on that one. Thanks. I didn't turn it on. Is this still on? It is. Okay. Raise your hand. Where are you? Oh, I see. Similar but but different. Um, I feel like I've modeled how to be a jerk. And uh, start over. I'm sorry. I feel like I've I've modeled how to be a jerk, and I have tried to repent and be humble. But still, sometimes my kids, I think just because it's not it's a little more abstract, they'll say like, "You never get in trouble, and you never do anything wrong." To which I say, you know, it just looks different. I don't get sent to my room. I wish somebody would send me to my room and tell me I'm being a jerk because a lot of times I keep hurting people and I wish I had a parent to, to Wait, your me. kids are saying it's not fair because you don't get disciplined? Yeah. And oh. so I tell them like I have natural consequences. Like if I don't pay my taxes, I could go to jail or pay a fine. Or if I don't put gas in my car, I have to call the state trooper. I mean, I have tried to put flesh on it, but I think it's not a power struggle, but we feel like we it just hurts. We get disciplined all the time, and y'all never get disciplined. I have had all three of my children say that to me. Okay, so <laughs> think like a shrink with me here for a second. Why would they say that? What's their point? Therefore what? I mean, I think Therefore they, they shouldn't get disciplined? Uh, we, I should, think they, we should spread the wealth evenly across the culture? I mean, the maybe. Socialistic I, discipline? Maybe. I've tried, <laughs> to be the, I've tried to do the width of, like, I get it. Like, it's hard to be told no all day long and so maybe I'm not telling you enough like I love that about you and I love because I wonder if it's a reaction to like they're always feeling like we're on them in some way I don't know huh <laughs> um so the therefore is we feel like the amount of correction that's going on here is excessive yeah, but if you were at my house, that doesn't really feel... I, I was a child who was a people pleaser, and I might be pleasing my kids. So I, I don't feel like I'm always... Well, if it was really an oppressive environment, they wouldn't be able to pull this card on you. So, <laughs> you know... It's, <laughs> um, how old are they? 7, 10, 12. And they all do this, or mostly just the 12-year-old? Um, mostly the 10-year-old and the 7-year-old. Oh, really? The younger ones? Um, okay, so first thing I want to do is, I'm just curious, because this is a fascinating phenomenon. Like, what are they up to, you know? <laughs> if for nothing else than my own purient interest, I want to ask them some questions. Um, first thing I want to do is more talk with them about this than respond, okay? In other words, um, in, in any relationship, um, if somebody leads an interaction with a criticism of you, the thing to do is not to defend yourself. Okay? If somebody walks in the house and they're like, what do you think of parking like that? And you go, well, I just thought, you know, you might want to get the garbage out later. What you've said, in essence, is this is a cool and legitimate way to talk to me. <laughs> See, I'm responding. All right? The correct response is, whoa, who put a bee in your bonnet about the parking? I don't think I want to have any conversation that starts like that. All right, so the fact that they're leading this conversation with a dare, a challenge, is just interesting to me. 
Okay, so A, I'm not going to engage the challenge by explaining to them the dynamics of cosmic discipline. Okay? Right. This child is always going cosmic. Cosmic. Always. Cosmo. At five, why are we here? Why is the universe here? What happened if God didn't make us? Would there be nothing? I mean, this child is a very critical thinker. Okay. Yeah. So I think you ought to play, I would at least try. I'm not saying this will fix it yet. But I, I just can't resist. I just I want to at least play Socratic method with them. So you're really thinking that there is no discipline that I receive? Huh. Like, how do you make sense of that? What is it that you see? Hmm. Do you have any questions of me about that? Or are you just sort of like throwing out like machine gun bullets that I'm supposed to dodge? I'll answer any questions you have. Or are you really sure? In other words, I want to kind of engage her a little bit strategically more than direct. I certainly don't want to directly answer the question because that keeps you one down. No, don't you see? I'm disciplined too. And all she has to do is go, no, you're not. And yeah. she's one. All right. So I don't want to get there. I kind of want to go, really? You don't think that I'm disciplined at all? Do you think your dad's disciplined? What do you think discipline is? If she's that cosmic, I want to play that with her. I think she like thinks, you know, how great is it to be a parent? We get to tell people what to do and we sit around and watch TV later than you do and eat bonbons. I mean, I think she's, this isn't fair. Then you must feel like you're one of the oppressed masses. Like, you, do you feel like that your life is really terrible? See, I haven't given anything about me yet with her. I'm going to kind of like just play this game and ask her questions and get her to think and talk and kind of back up what she's saying. Now, I don't know if that's actually going to address the problem, but I can't resist that with her. Okay, because basically she just throws out bait and you have to chase it around. Yeah, I'll give you her number. It's really fun. <laughs> um, all right. Now, that's, that's, that's the curiosity part. And it's somewhat loving in that it creates an opportunity to explore with her. Um, Let's land it, though. And I think at the end of the day, there is an answer that says, um, you can kind of be a bit entitled, like how you feel like you deserve to be treated. And that does not always feel good. And so I don't think I'm going to let you talk anymore to me like that because it's, it's unkind. And I love you, but I can't let you be unkind to me. And if you have any questions about how discipline works with me or the universe, I'll be glad to answer them. But I don't think I'm going to be your foil to defend herself when you throw out accusations. And that's where we land with the limits piece. So see how we're always dancing like, like Psalm 85 between peace and righteousness, between love and limits. I want to know what you're thinking, really. I want to care. That really means a lot. And by the way, it's also kind of mean, and I don't think I'm going to talk to you anymore about it. So, boo, boo, boo. Yeah. Do we owe one? We've done a couple from the studio audience. Do we owe one from our, our, the, the, okay, go ahead. Hi, um, we've got a couple of kids, ages uh, 6 to 17. I think you described each one of them. How do we, my wife and I, stay on the same page? Oh, good. Um... Sorry. Like, same page regarding um, who's the tough guy and who's the softy? That could be it, or just so we make sure we're saying the same thing to them. So uh. we use us uh, against each other. Ah, okay. They've done it a few times. Do, <laughs> do y'all end up having conflict? 
Like, that is not how we should handle this. That's so... Like with one another? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, we're, we're totally opposite personalities. I mean, of course, but... Okay. Use the microphone so our friends at home can hear it Sorry. too. I, I tend to be more authoritarian. Like I've really had to, I went through a year of uh, therapy last year and really think like I, I understood grace like theologically, but not at a heart level, like what you're talking about. And so like for the, probably the first, um, gosh, maybe like 14, 15 years of parenting, I was just like, you know, you're going to, yeah, exactly. And he is just, like, super chill, like, really laid back. So it's <laughs> – so our kids just – But I'm you've gotten more chill because of your therapy. Yeah, for sure. Right. Thank God. All right, so um, we all at the marriage conference? No, I think we're out of town, but we've listened and to some And you call of yourself Christian. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, um, here would be my question. How good are you all at resolving conflicts in other areas besides children? Uh, we skipped the marriage conference. <laughs> well, it's on the it's on the podcast. It's you can you can get it on the podcast, and I think it's on you guys' website. Anyway, one of the things we talked about was what it looks like like a default position for every marriage, and this is kind of standard equipment when you say I do, is um, I'm going to try to win and you're going to try to lose. Okay, I want a, a a new car. You say we can't afford it. Who's going to win? Right. And, and most couples live in a who's going to win kind of position. And I'm going to say, oh, my gosh, you're so cheap. Don't you see we have it in savings? Oh, my gosh, you know, I'm just going to go buy it and not tell you. And we'll do something to try to win. And the bottom line problem with that is that win-lose relationships don't work in the universe, much less in marriage. Because best case scenario, you win, which means you're married to a loser, which, you know, they're not very happy about that, okay? It's all on the, on, the, on the conference. So one of the things we talked about was that it's essential that a couple develop a, a, a covenant, a mentality, an orientation toward one another in their conflicts that we called a win-win or a lose-lose, whichever you call it. In other words, like the old saying, you know that a, that a corporate board meeting went well when both parties walk away going, man, we got screwed, okay? In other words... We make a covenant to say, in essence, I will not just take what I want and let you die on the vine. And you know what? You will not just take what you want and I die on the vine. And I don't know how we work that out exactly or what that looks like, particularly given any situation. But I know that once couples stop fighting, they start getting real creative. And once they start going, no, that's not the way it should be. It should be my way and start going, okay. So here's my way and here's your way. How do we kind of meet in the middle? How do we give? How do I flex? How do you flex? And that's about the heart of the couple, to the, what degree we can say, I disagree with you, but I'm willing, willing to flex with you on it. Like I am, I'm a lot more insightful and, 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 and surgical in my understanding of what needs to happen in a relationship than Norma is. And Norma has this... Um, soft grace to her so she takes my scalpel and administers anesthesia you know and makes this a healthy surgery rather than an alley stabbing which I would do you know um, <laughs> and somehow we're able to sort of bring this together and I know that I need her softness because if I went in there guns blazing it would you know feel good for a moment and it would hurt people I need that from her and so 
I, I listen for her to balance me there. And I think a good couple gets there. Um, that unilateral notion for parenting is so important. I, would, I tell parents sometimes, I would rather you parent together poorly than parent well separately. Maybe you're absolutely right, but I'd rather you not be right and do it together. I'd rather you be kind of right and you kind of right. And if you can't do that, then that's not a parenting question. That's a marital question. Go upstairs and fight it out until you can come down kind of going, okay, we've kind of landed. Now, if your kids are, are, are you know, wise to this, then they are going to use it. And they're going to go to one of you and not the other and play one in against the middle. And that's just where you guys need to be careful to say, you know, I mean, we can't hold a board meeting about everything. But if it's something of relative importance, you know, can I go out with these freakazoid friends to the rock concert? Then we probably need to talk. All right. And that just to be a, a, a done deal, go to non-negotiable. You're going to check with one another so they don't get to pull an end around with you. Good. Thank you. All right. Last. Um, I've heard you on a number of occasions sort of talk about the, uh, the magic power of connection. Yes. And how much of a, a solution it is to so many things people are going through. My, my question is twofold. The, the first one, I'd, I'd love to hear you just sort of generally talk about why it's so difficult to connect to children as adults, just to brain, you know, sp throw some things against the wall. Why is it difficult for people to feel like I'm treating my child like an object to be manipulated and worked on rather than a subject to be known and studied and learned and whatever else? Hmm. Question number one. Second question is much more specific. Do you have any wisdom for somebody who's trying to think about connection with a child who has clinically diagnosed struggles. Um, you mean like on the spectrum, difficult connection? Could be, autism, could be child depression, could, could even be a physical uh, disability that they have that makes it difficult for them to, there's just a challenge. So does that make sense? Yeah, those are two really hard ones. Yep, well, you know. Um, Let's assume, question number one, how do we connect to a child? Let's assume you know how to connect in the first place. Can we give the parent that superpower? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, so number one, you have to be able to connect. <laughs> All right, this is where you do some of your own work. If you're kind of a, you know, left brain, Mr. Spock, you know, positron boy and aren't really like into connecting, then there's your little you know, task for growth. You're wondering where to grow in your spiritual life. It's there. So as we'll talk about in the growth conference, that kind of heart growth only takes place within relation, relational connection. We touched on this in the marriage conference too. Um, that's why therapy works. You need to bring it to a person, uh, body of Christ, small groups, safe, best friends. And I want to be saying, um, I was actually talking to a friend this week. Um, and I was really blue about something, and uh, he said, you sound really like you're not feeling connected at all. And I said, I don't think that I really am. And he said, well, where are you? And I had, all of a sudden, I had this realization. I said, ooh, I don't want to be connected. 
I feel like I'm like way scared. I mean, you know, like my best friend, like I feel I don't want to be connected. I just kind of want to run and hide. And I sort of found this part of myself that earlier this week that was like, ooh, I don't want to be close. Now, we all have that. Ever since the fall, it's not safe to be naked and not ashamed. So part of us is going to resist connection. We don't want that vulnerability. But it's an area for us to be growing. Um, so put that on your to-do list of growing there. I'm a freaking shrink, and I needed to grow there this week. I mean, this is, you know, we, we all need this. So as you're awake to connection, then you start having empathy. And empathy is simply just the awareness of what it's like to be somebody else. And that's one of the most powerful ways to connect to a kid. In other words, empathy just says, like the 18-foot giants, what's it like to be you? And it doesn't have to be a big sit-down, you know, face-to-face interaction like me and wit and God. You know, that one goes in the history books. You don't get those very often. But real connection could be, man, I know that nobody wants to take a bath. Baths, I hate baths. I don't like baths myself. But we got to do a bath. Now, what you've done is connected with him. Okay? This is not you know, long division. Connection can be just an acknowledgement, just that I see you and I'm going to make room for you to feel bad. What we will talk about tomorrow about that is oftentimes when kids are struggling or feeling things, we the parents are uncomfortable enough with that to where we want to blow it off. Like, oh my gosh, you can't cry about everything. Come on. So one way to be connected to your kids is get rid of the non-connecting things like, you know, you know, in 10 years, you'll forget about this game. Come on, let's shake it off. And we do those things that basically say, I don't want your heart. So if we can just eliminate those and just be there and go, yeah, dude, that really does stink. That's, that, you're, you're winning. That's connection. It doesn't have to be, you know, super heavy or anything like that. Um, as they get older, and especially with teenagers, um, it becomes more like connecting to an adult. And therefore, it's a bigger requirement of you. Um, it's sort of like what you, we were doing with your child of to say, you know, I've noticed it really is hard for you when we push you to say you're sorry. You probably feel like we're trying to, like, you know, like monkey wrench you into doing some little sorry dance and you hate that. And I'm really talking person to person to that kid. Or with older kids and, and, and you know, you take a kid who's, who's a teenager and they're not motivated. And their parents are like, he's got all this potential and he won't do his work. He just wants to, like, play video games and stuff. I'm dying to look for a chance to talk with that kid. I don't want to just go in there and go, you're, you're going to make nothing of yourself, man. I want to try him. What's this kid's life like? Does he hate school? I hated school. I want to talk to him about that. So it's, as they get older, I, I can interact with them more as people. We'll talk tomorrow about how with teenagers, you relate to them both as their parent and as a fellow human being at the same time. It's complicated. But it's a super connecting thing with kids. Um, with kids who have an injury, with things like spectrum, things that feel more organic, um, I would just swing into professional help. Somebody really knows their way around this and can get to know this kid and how this kid can be connected to. I don't think I can make a generalization with kids who are spectrum-like. Um, because that has such an organic component to it. Um, and what we're talking about here is more relational and emotional. But you also mentioned a child who's depressed. Now, um, depression is unusual and somewhat interesting in children 
Because children don't tend to act in very much. They tend to act out. In other words, when they're in pain, they don't often go inside, I'm so blue and down. They more go outside and wet their bed or beat up their friends or quit doing school. Um, so it's a little unusual for a child who goes in. Now, if you have a child who is overtly depressed and you see that, obviously the question for you to be thinking about is what is going on in their life that's sort of crushing their heart. Um, let me give you a quickie on depression, okay? Depression is not the same as sadness. Y'all have heard me riff on the importance of sadness. Depression is not the same as being sad. Depression is actually the opposite of sadness. In other words, sometimes when our pain gets great enough that I cannot manage it any longer, I will sort of throw a breaker in my heart. Our hearts have breakers just like our house. And we can just shut the power off. Problem is that unlike our house, houses, our hearts only have one breaker. And when you shut the power off to the pain in your heart, you shut the power off to everything in your heart, and, and you go dead. And depression is actually the dead feeling of shutting that heart down because the pain is so great. So someone who is depressed has a real nasty dilemma. I leave the switch cut off and therefore feel depressed because I am disconnected inside, or I cut the switch back on and re-engage all that pain, which I'm not about to do. I just got rid of it, okay? So what breaks the tie there is for them to be connected to another person. If you bring that pain back online with me, we can actually manage it and metabolize it and heal it, and it can flow on downstream, and you don't need to cut your soul off. So you have a child who's depressed, I'm going to have to find some way to connect with that kid's pain, because he's not. Now, that's a tall order for a parent, and unless the answer is just obvious, um, like your co-parent is being abusive, then get help and get somebody to really kind of get inside and get to know that. Um, don't try to figure that one out all on your own. But kids who do get depressed usually have a very good reason for it, and you can help them understand that. And once you do, join them in the pain, and it can get resolved. One nice thing about kids, the blessing and the curse of kids is that they're very malleable and therefore injurable, but they're very malleable and therefore repairable, all right? And so the same thing that made it easy to injure them is the same thing that can make it a lot easier to help them heal. They can bounce back from that. I got two more questions in seven minutes. Hi, over here. Do we just go off the air <laughs> at nine or do we run into the evening news or like, okay. Where? Hello. Okay. Um, so my question is on the topic of how I, do I help my kids learn to be strong? Um, we have a daughter, we have actually five, but we have one that was diagnosed with type one diabetes when she was three. Huh. And she's nine now. And so I'm finding um, <clears throat> it's hard for me to be strong. Yes. And um, she is wanting to be more independent of managing her diabetes, like doing her insulin and eating things and stuff like that. And I'm just terrified. And yes, so, I've been there. Um, so I guess my question is for you is like, 
can you just like empower me to be strong for her yes. so that I can learn to be parent and let her do things like go and spend the night with somebody or go, you know, do things without me constantly right. checking on her. What's your blood sugar? What's your blood sugar? What are you eating? Like, right. I don't want that to be the only conversation we have. That is so cool. She's five now? She's uh, nine. Nine now. Excellent. Yeah. But she was diagnosed when she was three. Yes. Oh, y'all have really been through it. Ours was 13, which was a cakewalk compared to that. But, you know, there's nothing more anxious than the parent of a diabetic, you know. I mean, most parents worry about their kids getting into drugs. We worry about them getting into pizza, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do y'all deal with it together? <laughs> do y'all have a good, like, mutual support system do you care for each other, nurture each other, tend to each other in this vulnerability? I think so. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, because to your credit, and this would have been step one, which would have taken a long time, but you've already clipped out of step one, and that is learn to recognize that, gee, my anxiety is a real factor here, and you're already naming that. Beautiful. So that openness of my own anxiety is something I've got to make sense of in order for her to do this um, is super cool. Are you on the same page? Like, no, I'm, I'm, I push our kids a lot, so I'm always pushing her to learn, do the math, figure out what you need. So okay, good. So does that cause conflict between you two? Yeah, because if she does the math and gives herself insulin without me knowing about it, I totally flip out. <laughs> okay. Um, no. it, this didn't show up on the mic, but he was saying that he... Um, is a lot more open about pushing her and risk-taking and having her do her own numbers and all that for the diabetes. So what do y'all do with that conflict? I think, I think usually <laughs> we'll talk it out. So if she's really nervous about her doing it, then I'm, I'm like, we've got to let her grow. And so then I'll push her to do that. Or if I'm pushing her too far, then Lauren's like, hey, you need to pull back because that's a lot of insulin and it could be really dangerous. And so I think a lot of times we talk it through, but she gets a, she gets a lot of anxiety even, even when we do talk it through and okay. check yeah. on her. All right, so um, she's nine, so you have a lot of road under you. Um, given a typical day or week, how good is she at managing it? What's her track record? She's, she's pretty good. When we, Lauren? I mean, at three, she started I'll, I'll Lauren's position shots. on this. Um. I have a really hard time with her wanting to sneak food. Wanting what? To sneak food. Ah. So we're in that where she um, is wanting to get into things and she'll hide it from me. And, you know, her blood sugar numbers reveal that she had something. So we're trying to be work on being honest. Like, I don't want her to sneak into the cabinet and sneak a snack, you know, because she thinks I'm going to say no. All right, Dad, what do you do when she's snuck food? Uh, usually I have just have a conversation with her and tell her that this affects her life and she knows that she can't do that. And if she will come to us, then we'll give her the insulin she needs. And then, then I make her do the calculations and give her insulin. Okay. Do you think she's gotten into any kind of a little power struggle with you, Lauren? Yeah, probably. Like, Mom's going to try to control me, so I'm going to sneak food? Yeah. Right, we've got to think about that. Problem here is that the danger of, you know, mismanaging her food and her insulin is 
potentially very detrimental to her. But the danger of living with a lot of anxiety about, oh my gosh, what could happen? I could go into ketoacidosis. That's also damaging. So we're balancing two damaging things here, all right? Um, and, and, and we don't want to fall too far on the side of either one of them. So um, uh, do you ever discipline her if she sneaks food? Yes, we have. What does that look like? Um, I'll just, uh, you know, take privileges away from her or, you know, something Does like Dad that. do that too? Yes. You do? Okay, she good. also has celiac disease, so she's gluten-free. So we have a lot of confrontation over food stuff. But she's she is different about her gluten-free. She she doesn't eat gluten, and she's I mean she's pretty strict about that. There's there is the occasion that she will do something, but for the most part, she's pretty strict about that. Not near as with her her All diabetes. Right. Let me throw out just a couple of principles, just for sake of time, and because we can't completely address the whole thing. One thing I want to look at is I have a vibe that dad's a little more flexible and understanding with her than mom is. And I want y'all to be reflecting on getting more on the same page because the fact that y'all are in different places on this is, is imbalancing the system some. Um, I want to be careful and figure out how to get you and daughter out of the power struggle because kind of like the girl who won't say I'm sorry, she say she's sneaking food. Now power struggle is basically... Um, you're trying to control me, and I'm going to try to figure out a way to win, all right? And once that's the dynamic, then what's healthy and what should I eat or what's the wisest choice is not crossing their mind. It's just I don't want mom controlling me with all of her anxiety, okay? So that once that starts to be a dynamic, then she will make dumber choices, all right? So I'm wondering maybe like with this girl, if an opportunity to say, look, let's call a truce. I want your freedom as much as you do. And I'm going to work on my anxiety about it, and your dad's going to help me. And yet what I need to do, what I need to see is this. Let's do your numbers. Let's have a good run without sneaking food. And as you can show me more autonomy here at home, I will give you more autonomy out there. You earn a little here, I'll give it out there. You earn a little here, I'll give it out there. That's going to address your anxiety by you actually seeing that she can do it. I think it might curtail some of the power struggle because you're actually making room for her choices. Um, I don't know. Play with those, those thoughts. Yeah. Wish I, I could I give could, you more. You made the point to give more options, like you said, to the two outfits. Like I can, right, instead yeah. of just saying this is what you're going to have. Right, but she needs to know you're on her team about her independence so she doesn't have to fight so much for it. And we can get her on your team by her actually showing you some concrete ways in which she's trustworthy. That's kind of how I'm thinking. That addresses your anxiety and her freedom at the same time. Okay. Okay. Do we want to do one more? Or do we need to stop strictly at nine? Last you make the call. We're on? Okay, good. You can answer this tomorrow if on time-wise um, that we're limited. But do you have any thoughts for parents before they enter the technology world? We have an 11 and a 14-year-old, and we've not yet ventured out into that world. So I was just curious if you have tips on how to integrate these things into things like social media technology. But you can answer it tomorrow if you want. Well, um, we can see if we want to say more about it tomorrow. Um, in, 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 the, in the end of every chapter of the book, and in the, in the whole last chapter of the book, is nothing but Q&A. And um, because 
I wanted the book to be like a parenting conference. And my favorite part of a parenting conference is the Q&A. So I put Q&As at the end of every chapter and in the whole last section of the book. And there's a, a long Q&A about technology. And um, so I won't try to rehearse all of it here. But a lot of what I got was from a woman named Jean Twinge, who is a psychologist at UC San Diego. And she did an enormous amount of research on the effects of technology and teenagers in a book called iGen, spelled like iPhone, iGen. Um, it came out in 18, so if you call that dated, I'm sure there's even new research. But you can find all sorts of goodies on there. Um, she points out a lot of the detrimental aspects of technology and um, yet um, struggles with an answer like we do. And one of the reasons she says she struggles is because this is a new problem. No one else in history has ever had this problem before. <laughs> this isn't like, how do you deal with kids sneaking food? This is like a technological marvel that came out, what, 2008? And, you know, we're still trying to figure out what the effect it has on the human mind is. Um, but at, with the advent of the iPhone and also with social media, we've seen this giant increase in depression and suicidal ideation and all this junk in kids um, that's concomitant with it. And they've done further research to prove that it's not just correlational, it's actually a causational um, uh, dynamic. Um, beyond a certain number of hours um, of usage, okay? And you can read all the details in my book or hers. And um, so where she lands on it um, is, here's a funny quote. Uh, it, the, the New York Magazine interviewed uh, Steve Jobs when the iPad came out, and they asked him, they said, Steve, so what do your kids think of the iPad? And he said, well, actually, we don't really let them use it. We really limit the amount of technology our kids can use. I'm like, thanks, Steve, you know. Uh, <laughs> crying out loud. Anyway, so um, sh what she does is plays around with, and it sounds like a trite answer, but the bottom line is um, feel no compunction whatsoever about setting some real limits on its use. In other words, we're not going to get rid of tech technology. We're not going to get rid of screens. And now schools are using them, so they're everywhere. Pardon me? You just want to say complete no. Right, exactly. Now, the other end is, you know, here's your phone and your kid will stay on it forever and their brain will turn into, you know, protoplasm. Um, so, uh, Twinge talks some about um, this moderation piece of no more than this amount of hours, no phones at the table, no phones in their rooms at night. Um, super limitations on social media, um, uh, no smartphone until they're at least in high school, nothing in junior high. Um, there's brain development issues that, you know, pre-high school, literally all that junk's just a lot worse for you. But, you know, your kids now have this problem because, especially with social media, you know, when I was in high school, there was about 45 minutes a day where you found out whether you were a goob or not, you know, what group you were in. And now it's this 24-7 scroll, scroll line of, you know, you know, if you don't get a like in 15 seconds, then you're rejected, you know, and it's just terrible socially. It's hurtful to them. So there's a lot of room for just simply protecting our children from that, and they're having a level of maturity before they can engage it. But see, for them, it's like we're saying all your friends can be together, but you can't. 
Right. So you feel the tension? All right. So Gene is struggling with it. I'm struggling with it. But the bottom line is don't let that sense of, but everybody else is doing it, or I have to have a phone, or don't be bullied by what our tech society has done. But also don't go to the other extreme and go, no, you know, you're getting a rotary dial. You know, we, we're going to work with them some on it. So this is one of those stories where moderation actually is a good example. Read, read my chapter or her book or whatever if you really want to dig into it, all y'all, because it's certainly a big deal in our culture, a, a big, interesting problem. And I will close this in prayer. Thank you, guys, and thank all you at home. Father, we love you. I, I, um, I still feel the warmth of how we started, of reminding ourselves that see how much the Father's given unto us, that we are called the children of God. See, it's an imperative. Make us see. Help us see. Help us love our children in a way that shows them your character and help us love our children in a way that shows our children how much we need your character <laughs> through our own failure. Um, maybe a, a central part of the families and the lives uh, in this room and on live stream at home, uh, that your Holy Spirit would reach deeper and deeper into the hearts of these parents and these children and make them blessed. Be with us tonight for rest, and in the morning as we come back, we love you. Amen.